Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Broadway Bullet, Volume 606, Something Borrowed, Something Blue, for October 20th, 2015. Subscribe with iTunes or RSS and don't miss an episode. This week, we talk with Kathleen Butler, veteran of three shows with Edward Albee, founder of Triumvirate Artists, to provide opportunities for theater artists over 55 years old. Riley Thomas just finished his third show, Wearing Black, for the New York Musical Theater Festival, and he shares the skinny and all the details of participating and getting your show up. Also, Jason Marin, lighting designer and head of Casting Light Podcast, discusses lighting, tech, and his career. So stay tuned. It's all coming up. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thank you, Sid Gold's Request Room. New York City's original rock and roll piano bar for great cocktails and live piano karaoke with Joe McGinty. Sid Gold's Request Room, located at West 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. All right, this is Broadway Bullet, Volume 606. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. And uh, before we get started with a great episode, I just want to remind everybody again that Again, I'm on the lookout for a space to do interviews at the second week of December. Got a couple of people looking for me, but if you guys have any ideas, I greatly appreciate it. Also, um, I need some help, um, some interns slash assistants to help. You get to meet a lot of great people. Uh, so if that's something that intrigues you, uh, give me an email at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Uh, without any further ado, let's get on with this great show. <laughs> Up close. I am sitting here in the back of Sid Gold's request room with Kathleen Butler, who has done so much in her career that I think if I were to list everything, I wouldn't have any time left to talk with her. But even so, I would like to hit on a couple summary things. I believe it's, an, and she can correct me when I'm done with all the introductions. <laughs> I believe she's originated roles in three Edward Albee plays. Okay. Uh, she's, uh, directing now. Mm -hmm. She is founded a theater company focused on employing artists over the age of 50. Um, she's doing a new show, Delirium's Daughter, which is transferring from a showcase to an off, off to a showcase to an off Broadway contract. Mm -hmm. Among many other things, we've got a lot to get into. So welcome Kathleen Butler. Thank you so much. I love being interviewed in bars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. This is great. All right. So um, I guess first thing, I think it's a good hick, a good hook for uh, a lot of people need to listen to you. And I think anybody who has done three plays with Edward Albee, uh, I, sh I should have greeted you by kneeling on the floor when you came oh, in. Oh, please. So <laughs> maybe, maybe if he were here, you could feel that. <laughs> I interviewed him briefly backstage once, and it was like I went into a trance. Everybody told me, great job interview. I'm going, I have no idea what I said. Oh, he's <laughs> he's he's dear, and he, he's obviously become, well, he has become, we've become very, very good friends over the years. So I, I owe my career to him because I hadn't worked for 
12, 14 years when uh, my daughters were born and I stayed home and best thing I ever did. They're terrific. And coming back into uh, the business, my agents had scattered to the wind. I was uh, kind of going, uh, and um, I uh, did an off-Broadway show. A friend of mine, the wonderful Aaron Frankel, called and said, I'm doing a Joe Stein play. Would you like to come do a part? And my husband said, nobody calls you after 15 years. Go do it. And I did. And right after that, um, I went to an open call by mistake. I actually had no intention of going up at Equity. And the stage manager, who was uh, our stage manager for the show I had just done, said, well, you know, there's an open call going on, and it's an Edward Albee show, and they're looking for two people who are in their 40s, and uh, nobody's in line. Nobody. I said, well, of course, it's cast, and, you know, but what the heck? I, <laughs> I'm there. Nobody else will admit they're 40. I wish I could say that now. I'm not 40. I'm 30. No. Um, but anyway, I went. I did a, a monologue from uh, Gene Brody, which is a play I had done before I left the business. And Edward's manager was there. And he said, well, um, the callbacks will be in two weeks and uh, Mr. Albee will be here. I said, you're going to call me back from an open call? I thought, oh, my God. Anyway, to make a long story short, I went back. Now we have all the agent submissions and everything. Everybody's got scripts. I have no sides. I have no nothing. And I go in the room, and there's Edward Albee. I'm like, oh, okay, I like this. And uh, he said, do you have a script? And I said, no. Do you have some sides? No, I don't. And he said, well, could you do a speech? From something? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, sure. So I did Gene Brody. Tripped over my skirt on my rise because I had boots and a long skirt on. And um, after I finished, I said to him, you know, I usually don't fall down when I'm acting. He said, I can only help this play. <laughs> and, and a week later, a week later, I got the call from Glenn O'Malley's his manager saying, how would you like to go to Vienna? And that was marriage play. And that's how I met Edward Albee. He gave, my, gave me my career back. He picked me from the chorus. And uh, a few years later, he called up, and we were friends by then. But he said, are you still tall? I remember you as tall. <laughs> I said, Edward, I just saw you at Christmas. He said, well, I have a new play. So off we went again to Vienna for Three Tall Women. So my, uh, he's, he's become a very, very dear close friend of mine and um, wonderful. What a thrill. I mean, I think probably the best playwright, American playwright of the 20th century and going into the 21st century now. So that's, that's my connection with Mr. Albee. All right. What was the third one? The third one was Occupant, which we did at um, Signature, the original Occupant. Anne Bancroft was supposed to do it, and she got ill. I was doing the matinees for the play, and uh, Anne got uh, ill, but not her final illness, but she had bronchitis. And, and so she never did it, and so I did it. Uh, so the greatest thing was never being so nervous in my life because it's a two-hander. And I thought, oh, my God. We opened it, and Edward came backstage and said, it's so good to see my friend up there again, meaning uh, the occupant. Yeah. So it was that's how I got to do occupant. So, All right. Yeah. Well, let's move on to something that seems to be uh, very exciting and very dear to your heart. You've, you've formed a new company that's with the premise of trying to employ more over 50-year-old actors? 55. 55, okay. <laughs> 55. Okay. Yeah, it, it is. Oh, 50. God, that, I'm getting close. It's 55. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we started a company called Triumvirate Artists about, it's about five or six years ago now. And that was the premise. And there were so 
many wonderful actors, actresses, but it's not only just the actors and actresses, it's all the technical people. It's the costume designers, it's the director, it's um, our stage manager, it's all these great people who have so much to give, are so talented, know the business so well, and that's whom we're looking to give some work to. And we're actually doing that right now with Delirium's Daughters, although there's only one character over 55, the father. But we felt we would start with that full production because it's very commercial and very, it's delightful, it's fun. So we've got our stage manager, we've got me directing, uh, we've got most of the technical people are age, age appropriate. <laughs> so we're very excited about moving on from here. Do you feel, this actually I think ties into a lot of what's going to be a theme for me for, for probably not just these, this season, but a, a few seasons to come about the lack of diversity in plays. Uh, mm. Do you think there is ageism in theater? Oh, there's ageism everywhere. Yeah. The, old, the older I get, and I'm a runner. I mean, I, I get out there, I run five to seven miles. I'm in great shape. And I'm not going to tell you my age simply because I don't wanna, want people to say, oh my God, she'll never remember lines. She won't do this or that. Yes. That does seem to be like one of the number one things people mention. Oh, the play has older people in it. Getting, oh. ones, getting ones that need to remember their lines oh, is going to be. Oh, please! I I did a Sam Shepard play down at um, Contemporary American Theater Festival. Uh, it was two two summers ago, and you know how Sam Shepard writes. I mean, and like the way Edward writes. Of course, I can learn lines. Of course, most actors can learn lines. The problem is. I think, and I'll just say this, my hair started to go gray after I had my second daughter. I always blame her for that. But no, I have gray white hair. And that's 20 years. The minute I had gray hair, things started to change. Yes, I could color my hair. Yes, I could do this. Yes, I could do that. But all of a sudden, I was reading for people that were 80 years old because I had gray hair. So I think, yes, there's a real lack of diversity. There are plenty of wonderful actresses out there in their 70s and their 80s who can certainly do the job. They're, they're wonderful. And uh, not only actresses, but actors and, um, and stage managers. We have Jack Janina working with us, who's a Broadway production stage manager. I mean, he's so great. He's wonderful and so professional. A real pleasure to have him sitting next to me at that table. But, you know, work, once you start to get older, they're not a lot of parts. Well, there's like, there's one, well, there's two tropes. Yeah. The, the, the wise old man, woman, the, the mentor. Right, right. And there's basically... Mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, you know, essentially. I think some of that problem is how do we how do we get playwrights to create new tropes? How do how do we get that I think it's it's too easy to forget that your story isn't over. Well that's true. You know, and, 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 how, and people that age, their story yeah, isn't yeah. over. So how interesting can twenties uh, and thirty somethings be? compared to somebody in their 50s and 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s. Look at Three Tall Women. That's mm -hmm. a wonderful Myra Carter doing a, the woman who is, I'm 91, I think she says, uh, in the beginning of the play. And everybody from that moment on is riveted by a 91-year-old woman who tells the story of her life. It's riveting. It's interesting. It's got history. And yet I think most playwrights now, so many of them are so young. They don't think about it. And when they do think about it, they think of, oh, their grandma. Or, you know, I remember um, my great aunt who was kind of fun. I'll give her a few lines. I, I don't think they realize the gold 
that's in them their yeah. pills. Come on. Well, I can give a couple commercial reasons that would make sense to actually try to find that hero's journey for the 70-year-old. Right. You know, like I said, you're, I think that just the implication to it that, A, these tropes are built, these two tropes are built in, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, you know, playwrights are all kind of taught one version or another of the hero's journey. And right. That, and that seems like a young person. Uh. But, like, the... the a journey is any one thing in the story, and we're all still striving for our life. I think the gold that they're missing is, first off, especially in a larger market, if you write a, a role for a 70-year-old, right. you're not going to be competing with every single other play and movie for production. If you want a star, I bet you could you, probably get one. You can sure get them. <laughs> I mean, the ones yeah. especially uh, who have not retreated to uh, Hollywood, yeah. you know, the big stars... But even, uh, I bet they'd welcome yeah. coming back. Most of them based, started in theater. Yeah, I'm talking, yeah, I'm not going to say theater and Hollywood. Maybe it's a little hard to get produced, but I bet it's a lot easier to grab your star. It's, that you it get. sure would be, I would <laughs> think. There, you have your pick. What did I just, I just saw something with, oh, I can't, it's not coming to my mind, mm-hmm. but it was a wonderful story, and I, I, Watched it on one of the those channels that you find that show <laughs> these movies that nobody ever gets to see. It was marvelous. And I thought, oh, look at this. And it's not because I'm only interested in that age, age range and seeing that. Uh, I'm just interested in a good story. And I think a good story can be told by young people about older people, about middle-aged people, and about younger people, mm-hmm. and about kids. There's, a, you know, we're all here on Earth. We there's stories everywhere. And if we bring a little diversity into our stories, maybe the stories won't all feel the same. Yeah, I mean, I how many of those movies can you sit through? I'm just talking about <laughs> the movies. I mean, I, yeah, I I'm happy they're all working, but jeepers, come on, it's just like it, it, they're all the same. Basically the same to me. I'm not hearing or seeing anything wonderful and going, oh, God, I'm going to walk out of here and talk about that. You know, it's fun, but it's, it doesn't move me. It doesn't get there, I don't think. And you know what? People are living to be older. Yeah. And that's a big market. That is a huge market. So... Hopefully, we're the triumvirate's going to try to hit that sweet spot. I don't know about anybody else, but hopefully, we will. And if any comedy makes sounds insensitive, please correct me. I'm, uh-huh. I live in Montana now, and we're not super politically correct over there, and it seeped back in a little bit. Um, <laughs> but you know, well, it's God's country, Montana, the big sky. I think there's also, you know, in in my generation or younger, there's this idea of, you know, the quote unquote blue hairs, the the crowd that comes to theater just to support it, but they're mindless. But you know what? The people that are of that generation now are the the generation that came out of, you know, the 60s and the 70s. These are not conservative. No. There's a big mistake out there that that I, and I think it's actually hard for theater and marketing that they still think that they're marketing to the 80-year-olds of 30 years ago oh. and uh, not the 70 and 80-year-olds of today, which are more liberal, quite frankly, than I think I've seen a lot of you know, 30, 40, 50-year-olds. They're, they're not only more liberal, they're, they support the arts. I don't know what's going to happen when this generation goes. You go to any drama on Broadway or off-Broadway and you look around to see who's there. It's my husband. I always joke. It's the old libs are here, <laughs> and, but they they support it. And even if they're the most conservative yeah. people in the world, they grew up listening and being able to sit still for two hours, an hour and a half, uh, sit through three hour plays, which are a lot of Edwards plays are quite long, two and a half hours. They grew up sitting still and listening. They listened to radio, they went to theater, they went to movies, and they concentrate, and they know, and they're just wonderful audiences. They're wonderful audiences. When I'm acting, I love the matinees. Yeah, the papers may rattle, 
But I'll tell you something. They listen. They get it. I absolutely agree. You know, and but like I said, but see, sometimes it's hard to shake those old perceptions. It is like I, <sighs> I, I work at a fairly conservative Catholic university. There could be more conservative. I've gotten away with, like I've done Chicago at a Catholic university, and, and but you know the concern is always like, what if the older people are offended? And I tell you, it's never been the older crowd in this weird day and it's age. Never. It's the thirty and forty year olds that come up and like, why I never? I, I'm right. so offended, oh, and I have this privileged right to never be offended in my life and well, never be challenged on a thought. Guess what? They don't have that right. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to do Chicago, and it's uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm Catholic, and I I tell you, uh, I, all the people I know are. It takes a lot to offend them, and they're they're there to support and learn. I mean, if you go up to the Y, uh, I call it the Jewish Y, up uptown. Oh my God, they do more things, have better lectures, they do all these wonderful things. And who's there? These older people are there. If I go down and work uh, as a actor or a, a director in Florida or out to Phoenix, the people that are there are always the older people. They might be conservatives, I know, I don't, <laughs> you know, but they're, they listen, they enjoy the play, they have questions. So, I, yeah, I think this younger mentality of people uh, about this is offensive to, <laughs> they're offensive, I'm sorry, but they are offensive. They're offensive to the arts. You have to let arts live in this country. And to lose it would be horrible. They don't want to give money to them. They don't want to do this. They don't want to do that. And that's a shame. That's really, really a shame. We're going to lose big time. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Oh, this has been a pleasure. How much fun is this? It's, it's been a blast. Yeah. It's, and you're... Yeah. You're going to be a great old guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there really quickly. Oh, no. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. Okay. Thank you. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. Listening Room Before you hear our interview with Riley Thomas, who just completed his third round with the New York Musical Theater Festival with his musical... Wearing Black, thought I'd let you guys hear one of the songs that he wrote for that show. So here, before the interview, is Life Music. When I think of life, I think of music How it seems to play out like a song Humble at the start, hinting at a theme Building as it goes along Patterns emerge in the melody like the way they emerge in a man Complications rise, tension always builds Till it plays out the only way it can Once you've come to the hook in the chorus You're too deep in the track What's been played like the choices men have made Can't be taken back Music seldom surprises me What it's been tells me what it will be Charlie always thought he was immortal Leave it up to death to prove him wrong But from how he lived his life how he would end up was as obvious to me as any song Maybe to me, but not to Charlie Blowing through his life so unconcerned With powders up his nose, needles in his arms On the other end of bridges that he burned 
Charlie lived like his life was a concert and the world a faceless crowd. The stage was his and the song he was playing was the only song allowed. Blind and deaf from the light and sound didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. How could we both have come from the same place? How could we both have the same face? How could the blood in his veins be the blood that runs in mine? And if he was in fine, how could I be on the radio once he's gone i can start to forget him so i'm glad to see him go at least he lived the way he died hard and fast one hell of a ride Festival feature. I'm joined here with Riley Thomas. Riley is a veteran of the New York Musical Theater Festival, fondly known as Nymph. Rest of us having uh, worked in three different shows with the festival, and uh, so I think he's very uniquely uh, suited to talk about the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the New York Musical Theater Festival. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> All right. So. We're going to, you, you obviously, we, we were going to talk a little bit about your shows, and I know this is some exciting news, you know, for people to remember later on, that you're going to be doing a film of one of your movies, so Absolutely, we're going to touch sure. on that. I'll talk about it incessantly. And, uh, but kind of the first thing that I think a lot of people, a lot of people do festivals, and there's a lot of writers out there who want to get to the next step, and um, so I'm doing a couple short series on people who have um, participated a lot in particular festivals um, to really get that lowdown, because you you don't get the real deal looking on the website and how to submit and what. <laughs> no, of course not. You get the you get the glamorous side and you get the the side that people want you to see, which is absolutely helpful. Um, but that kind of romanticized version isn't necessarily going to be what people need in the trenches. And sometimes, and sometimes it's not even just over romanticized, but at all. But I don't think you know. Sometimes it's just the nitty gritty. Sure. Apply. This is what you do to apply. And but what do you what are you in for if you're accepted? Well, sorry, excuse me. What are you in for if you're accepted? Yeah, that's mm. an entirely different experience. Um, so so uh, the first question I want to ask along this line, and, and you feel free to go off on tangents, Broadway loves tangents. Sure. Um, but what do you think most people, what, what are most people's expectations about getting into the New York Musical Theater Festival versus what do you think are realistic expectations they should have? That's a very good question. I think that, of course, I can't speak for everybody, but... I think there is sort of an overall expectation that Nymph is going to be the final step before somebody's Broadway or off-Broadway transfer. It's sort of going to be the thing that puts you on the map. It's going to be the final step that you need before fame and stardom and your career takes off and this whole beautiful idea of Tony Awards and stuff. Um, I think that can be a dangerous expectation to have. Um, I think a more realistic expectation of what Nymph, or really any festival is going to be, is what is the effort that you're putting into it? Because that's going to be what comes out of it. It really is a reap what you sow kind of experience. So if you, for instance, if you surround yourself with incredibly talented people with the right kind of connections, more people are likely to come on board with your show and even just see it or even just review it or even just take notice of it, or even just listen to it, all of which are triumphs. Getting people in the seats is a good expectation to have, you know? But in order to do that, you need the right publicist, and you need the right, you know, you need the right team, you need the right draw, all of that stuff. So 
managing expectations. I'm not really answering your question. <laughs> That's good, um, but you're answering questions. <laughs> managing your expectations of the festival is is a really important challenge because to be honest, what you should expect from a festival is nothing. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. However, that being said, the sky is the limit. It really is. Well, I do no, I want to correct you. I don't think you should ever expect nothing. Okay. From a festival. Sure. But what can you? I mean, but I don't but you're right. Expecting a Broadway transfer and fame and fortune immediately, no. Yeah, I guess rarely. My mentality is if I go in expecting nothing, just that blanket, mm-hmm. then I can really work for things and I can really sort of establish my, you know, my foundation and then as I'm building up and off of that work, that's what leads to new expectations. So, for instance, the New York Musical Theater Festival has an unbelievable network of people, and right. it, has an, it has such a great name recognition. So I think what you can expect from NYMPH is being able to really dig into that network and connect with people. And I think that that's something that you can expect, and I think that that's invaluable. Um, the entire crew at NYMPH really is there to serve the writers. They really are there to help curate your work and to help get it seen by the right people. They really are resources for you. And a lot of that is personnel and personal capital. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a reasonable expectation to have. I think that another reasonable expectation to have going into the festival is that you are going to have people come see it and you are going to have people come talk about it. And that's invaluable. You can't expect <laughs> what they're going to say, but you are going to get people there and people are going to be talking about it. And that's wonderful. That's an invaluable tool for your arsenal. Um, I think it's reasonably expectable or expected. Um, I'm a writer, I swear. Yeah. I know words. <laughs> words good. <laughs> words good. Um, I think it's a reasonable expectation that you're going to get the right kind of people involved in your project too. There's such a there's such a love for Nymph on the creative side. Everybody loves doing new works. Everybody loves being a part of something that's that's new or in development. Everybody loves coming to the table to play. I think that that's a good expectation to have, and that's something that I love. That's one of my favorite parts of the process is working with people who are excited about new works and want to help develop something. That's a good expectation. Mm-hmm. Overall, I do think you can expect to meet a lot of good people. Yes. And, yeah, I'm trying to keep my opinion out as much as possible, but I actually also participated in in two years ago, two summers ago. Which show did you do? Uh, After Hours of the Dead Legend. It was just the Dead Legend at the point. I actually brought my entire student that was co-written with my students at the University of Great Falls. So I had to manage their expectations. Oh, sure. I had a lot of students who, you know, no matter how hard I told them, thought that, oh, I'm going to be discovered. Right. <laughs> and, and you never know. You might get discovered. Yeah. You know what I mean? That this We this... actually did have we actually did have one of our students got literally three cards from agents. It was uh <laughs> Yeah, that's not that's not out of the realm yeah. of possibility. That's what I mean when I say the sky is the limit. There are things that go to Broadway mm-hmm. from the New York Musical Theater Festival. So you really never do know. But our, our tr- we're traveling in was a very different experience than the traditional kind of nymph sure. thing. Well, you know, we were one of those invited things. Montana is a foreign land, much like Korea, I think, for nymph. <laughs> <laughs> Anything outside of New York yeah. is foreign. Um, but I think another thing that I'd love to talk about, since you've have probably been involved in some form on it for three sides, I think the first thing people freak out about when they get accepted is... Money? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's. I mean, well... Nymph is cheaper than mounting a musical, you know, on your own, and they insist it's still musicals are pricey things. It's astonishing, actually, how much something costs. Um, you're right; it is cheaper than mounting a musical, but at the same time, it's you know, it's the cost of a school year, <laughs> depending on how big your show is, um, and that is absolutely a panic factor in a lot of ways because I don't come from money. I don't know a lot of people who have money, um, and a lot of it is you you find it, you raise it, you find it, you beg for it, you work for it, you save, you eat ramen. Money is a huge consideration, absolutely. Now, how do you manage expectations for those contributing to help you get the show up? 
God, that is also a good question. <laughs> if you know the answer to that, please yeah. let me know. Um, how just how have you done it personally? Even you know. Well, personally, I'm I'm incredibly frank to the point where you know, <laughs> for better and for worse. So um, I do a lot of like grassroots kind of kickstarting, you know, crowdfunding that kind of thing, and I basically go around and it's you ask your friends and pretty much everybody you know. Hey, I need ten bucks. Everybody spends 10 bucks for one drink at the bar, spend it to help me make my dreams come true. It's kind of that kind of grassroots appeal that has worked for me. Um, anybody who knows me sees how committed I am and how hard I work, and that usually goes a long way too. They know that what I'm doing is not easy, and pretty much everybody is willing to support. You just have to ask. You have to get over your fear of asking. And... As you get more and more involved in, you know, the New York City musical theater scene, you start to know more people who have more money and you get better at asking for more money. Um, and that just gets easier. So for me, basically in terms of managing expectations, I figure out, well, what can I reasonably give this person for the money that they're giving me? They give me enough money, it's tickets to the event and, you know, a VIP pass to the uh, mm -hmm. party or whatever if I have an extra pass kind of deal. Um, it's, I can send them some recordings. I can, you know, give them some signed posters, po autographs, bring them to a rehearsal, that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, it's being very frank and upfront with the fact that they're giving you a donation essentially, and they're not getting much back other than the satisfaction of seeing my work come to fruition and providing work for a bunch of artists in the community. Yeah. So are you, do you feel comfortable sharing, you've done three shows, do you feel comfortable sharing how much they've actually cost? Yeah, ask me anything. Okay, so how much, how much have the three shows cost? Okay. We don't so, have to go into details of what and why, but I think, I think people need to know the specific amounts they can be looking at. Yeah, absolutely. So my first show in 2012 was Stuck, and that um, budget came out to be, I think, $37,000, I think, overall. I could be wrong, I'd have to look at that. Um, but it, it was definitely in that ballpark, give or take a grand. Um, my third, or sorry, my second show was in 2013, and it was more of a concert. It was a one-night-only event, two performances. Um, it was a large concert. Uh, <laughs> I was doing four snapshots of four different works that I was working on, sort of like a, here's a smattering of my upcoming work. And uh, that I produced non-equity. Um, to keep costs down, but that still ended up costing me about six or seven thousand uh, in terms of rehearsal space and musicians and you know the whole nine yards. Um, and then this most recent show, Wearing Black in 2015, which I just closed, uh, ended up costing me forty three um, thousand. So do people make their money back on tickets? No. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I think some people think that. I wanted to ask that. Wow. Okay. You, can get a, you, you get a little bit back, but it's... Yeah, you do get a percentage of the house. So it's... And it's not an insignificant chunk if you sell well, but it's still not... It, right. <laughs> it, it's, it's, the thing is you get, you know, five, six, seven performances. And the purpose of doing the show is to get all the right industry there and the press there and all of that stuff, or at least that's always been one of my mm -hmm. goals is to get people talking about me and my work and the people in it. Um, and you have to buy those tickets. You have to, you know, provide those tickets for people. And that comes out of your box office sales. So at the end of the day, you're just not doing enough performances to, to do your job. Right. How many, up. how many tickets are you buying and giving away to people? Um, do you feel to do your job? Right. Honestly, I'll buy a ticket for any industry person who wants to come see the show. Um, so probably somewhere between 25 and 40% of tickets at any show I have bought. No, I think that's a really good thing for people to know out there. Yeah, and, and it, diff it differs, you know, buy as many as you want or <laughs> as few as you want. Uh, it entirely depends on what you're hoping to get out of the festival, what you're hoping to get out. Um, and so, you know, that comes out. And so you can realistically expect to make a couple of grand back, uh, at the end of the day, which is a nice little boost. Um, but it usually <laughs> ends up going to all the people that you still owe money yeah. <laughs> for. Cause for me, you know, in order, one of the only ways that I've been able to do any of these things is being very upfront with my team and 
there are certain people that you have to pay according to union rules or yeah. things like that. And you, you have to balance those priorities. And then some members on your team, you're like, I can give you this now and this later and this, and you balance your cash flow and you try to make that work. And sometimes you have to borrow money from someone yeah. and, you know, borrowing Peter to pay Paul. And uh, the money is a huge consideration. However, don't let that stop you. I was in no position to produce any of these three shows. <laughs> Realistically, financially, on paper, I should not have done it. But it was important to me. And if you jump without a safety net, you'll find a way to catch yourself. So any parting shots you'd like to hit us with uh, before we wrap up this interview? I want to tell people that it's hard. It's really hard to do this. But if you want to, you find a way and you make it happen. And there really is nothing like the lights going down right before your show is about to start for something that you've written. There is no better feeling in the world than that moment. Um, that's pretty much all I would all I would say. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. Right. Best of luck on your next project. Thank you. Stay tuned. After this next interview, we're going to play one more song from Riley Thomas's musical, Wearing Black. <laughs> Backstage. I have got Jason Marin here with me today of Casting Light Podcast at castinglightpodcast.com. Jason has done lighting design uh, for entertainment events, Broadway shows, and everything in between. Uh, he has a podcast for anybody interested in that sort of thing, and he's come onto our show to talk a little bit about what he does and and maybe uh, a little bit about what you should know about what he does. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm okay. Thanks for having me. All right. So first off, um, you, you tell us a little bit about your podcast. And, and oh, the- well, um, the Casting Light podcast is something I created. Um, it, it's, it just finished its first season. And it, yeah, actually, lightless. Hmm. Seasons are a weird thing in podcasts. Yeah, well, it, fin- it, finished, <laughs> it finished its first season in, um, in June 2015. But it's an idea that I had I'd had for quite some time, which was that, you know, we have these conversations on site and at dinner and at drinks about, like, well, how did you learn how to do that? And, well, how do I get to learn the thing that you're doing? And what's the next thing I should do with my career? And I, I thought that if those conversations could be, had, could be had and everyone else could hear them, that would help uh, quite a bit. So I decided to start having interviews with people who were designers, assistant lighting designers, gaffers, production electricians, programmers, and then the sort of also some of the more allied uh, people like projection designers, projectionists, riggers, um, just, so, just so we can all start learning from each other a little, a little bit more. Uh, because one of the things I've seen is that the industry is, is changing in a way where there's less and less and less sort of specificity. Specific. Yeah, you got it right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when it comes to genre where it's, you know, people are working in dance and in concerts and on television and in feature films. And everything is sort of becoming um, uh, a lot blurrier. Uh, you know, one of the you know one of the tours I did, uh, one of the tours I programmed that is um, was a combination dance, rock, kids, music show. So uh, you know, just I, I just I feel like we should all be sharing more, and yeah. that was the concept behind the Casting Light podcast. Well, also, I suspect, how long have you been doing light design and such? Since 1994? I, I, I suspect there's been a lot of technical changes and advances in lighting since then, I feel like. Oh, uh, yeah, there, there, there definitely have. Uh, you know, LEDs became a thing. Uh, plasma bulbs tried to become a thing and then didn't. Um, moving lights went from being something that you saw on just extremely high-end um, concerts and on, on Broadway to something that you see literally everywhere. And uh, the job of the programmer has become larger and larger, and there's sort of more of us than ever before. So um, how flexible do you have to be? I I guess, how different are all these different jobs between stage and more arena events, say, and television studio? Are Are the principles behind them very different from venue to venue? The principles can be different. You know, the fir- the first thing you have to do is do whatever the, is do whatever or whoever you're working for needs you to do, and that's sort of where I start. Like you know, it's, it's always like try to be the most useful guy in the room, mm-hmm. and that that's sort of like the most crucial thing. And then everything after that is kind of based around that. Um, you know, the the most experience I have is as a, is as a moving light programmer. You know, across the most genres, and you know that 
that job can change depending on the thing. You know, for example, for the summer concert series I've been doing at Lincoln Center, the programmer is tasked with a huge amount of, of what is going on because the designer is dealing with a whole lot of other things. So a lot of the look of the stage, a lot of where the cues go, a lot of where the changes happen, that's all decided by me. To a uh, television show like Rachel Ray, uh, which, which I do with, with lighting designer Mitchell Bogard, um, which is very, I do what he says and that's all. And occasionally my input is asked for and, and, and that's that. And, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I find that legit where it can, can be more like that, or in some cases it's, it's more like live concerts where it's, Hey, just show me some stuff and let me figure yeah. out what I, what I need. Um, so I, I, I almost find that the, the changes are more about who you're working with than the specific th- kind of show. Yeah. So what are some things that people are there misconceptions you run into of people thinking this is your job, but it's not really your job? Well, <laughs> I, I would say the biggest misconception about is, is about how much time things take. Um, one of the designers I program for is Mike Baldessari, and he he designed the, the movie, the film Nine, and you know he often talks about how people will call him and say, "I want what Nine looked like," and he goes, "Well, that's going to take X amount of time and X amount of dollars and X amount of guys," and they go, "Oh, we can't afford that," and it's well. That didn't happen in a vacuum. And I run into that with events. I run into that with some theatrical stuff, too, where it's, you know, they have a, you know, a five-day or six-day, you know, in their mind schedule for something. And actually the thing that they want to do with what they're telling me they want to do it with is going to take 12 or 14 or 15 days or however long. And... um Television can be the most sort of painful that way because because it's a, the time, there's there's such a time crunch always on television. Um, what was that? What was that? Oh, that was I just bumped my stand. Oh, okay. There's such a time crunch there, and you know, and you get it done because you because you always get it done. But then the sort of the 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 ultra compressed process that you had to go through to do it becomes the new normal. So with that. Um how much has camera technology changed lighting over the years? The Cameras that- are better than ever. Cameras are amazing now. If you go back and look at old, you know, even not even old, I mean, you know, from, from the 80s, thing, the cameras just couldn't capture everything that, 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 was, that was there. And you know that because you know what things look like and you don't see it on, you know, on screen. You know, if you look at, you know, award shows from the 80s or television shows from the 80s. And, and now cameras are incredible. You know, they can see more color than they've ever been able to see. They can see at a lower light level than they've ever been able to see before. Um, I mean, like, you know, when we did, uh, when we did the, when, when we shot the, so I, I've, I've programmed on two Broadway shows. When we shot them for, uh, for archival and for B-roll, I mean, the amount of changes we had to make were really, really minimal. It was just about, really about, you know, changing the follow spot levels. And doing a little bit of it, you know, bringing some things down or, you know, softening some of the blues because the blues can still can really bloom on on camera. But, um, you know, compared to what you ha- used to have to do and the limitations you used to have to have, um, it's it's fabulous time to be, to be working on camera and working on broadcast. So um, I know I know you've done not a lot of stage, but you've done some Broadway. But have you seen enough to know, I guess. Anybody who's in New York and probably other areas of the country, uh, projection has like taken off on stage work in a humongous way. Um, and the thing I keep hearing is that causes way more light challenges than they were ever expecting. I haven't that, really found that to be true. Okay. Um, both of the shows I've programmed on Broadway have projections. Um, I've also programmed some, some I programmed two national tours with projections. Um, uh, one with a couple with the video walls and uh, a lot of the event design work I do. Uh, there's projections, of course, because it's always video screen or something. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that we've that we've had to do a whole lot to make sure projections works. Um, you know, projections are great, but projections have been around for a long time. I mean, you know, one of the guys I interviewed on my podcast has been doing projections on on stage and for, you know, for, for bands and things for 30 plus years, you know, at first it was using slide projectors and it was using like NASA three gun projectors. And, um, I mean, the projectors are brighter than ever before. They're more versatile than ever before. And that's great. Um, 
but I, I, I don't I don't know that we've had to do a whole lot to make sure you could see them. And I, you know, I think that's a little bit counterproductive. So you obviously keep busy with a lot of work on lighting. You know, this is Rachel Ray and uh, the the other projects you were talking about. Are there ever any projects you get involved on, like gratis for just the love of this is a cool project? Not in a while. <laughs> you know, in in general, that usually now takes the form of I can accept a a different rate than the one I'm I usually do. But you know, honestly, I, I can't. I'm not in a position, any, you know, where I can have things cost me money anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you know, it used to be that I would do things for free when I had nothing else going on. But now I don't. I don't ever have nothing going on. So it's, you know, it's just not an option anymore, really. I mean, the yeah. podcast is free, so yeah. I mean, there you go. That's that's like, that's like I'm doing for the love of it. Yeah. Uh, how breaking in when you came in? What what was what did you have to do? What did you take? What. It was, it was, you know, my path has been a little bit bizarre. Um, you know, out of high school, I knew I wanted to do lighting um, because I discovered lighting in high school at uh, LaGuardia High School on the Upper West Side. Um, so I went to conservatory at Purchase. And after Purchase, I, my first job was at The Kitchen, which is a theater on 19th Street here, which is primarily dance, but also does some video stuff. And what was really good about that was it, I, I, I Anything I hadn't learned yet, I had to sort of get get up on, like video, because they have a huge video component there, so I had to learn all about video and uh, like live video mix, and that's helped a lot since then, um, just knowing that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, I was still doing some off-off stuff when I had time, you know, I was just going to design friends off-off Broadway shows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I got like one off-Broadway show in there, and that was sort of that, and, and I realized it wasn't like going anywhere, so I really transitioned to events um, leaving the kitchen and just sort of doing events full time. And uh, th that's sort of where I started shifting into programming, um, you know, becoming, you know, making programming my specialty. Mm -hmm. And knowing the design stuff I knew, knowing the programming stuff I, I learned, uh, it turned out that that was a really, really good combination. Um, because, you know, for a friend of mine likes to say that, you know, programming moving lights is, you know, 60% of it is knowing what looks good. And the rest of it is knowing how to operate the fixtures and, and what to do with them. So for new... Well, oh, I just know. So, yeah. so um, you know, and, and then I, I really good at that. And then theater kind of brought me back. You know, like the, 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 the people that knew I knew how to do the stuff, they were, you know, people were being asked for recommendations. Do you, know, do you know someone who knows how to operate these devices? Oh, yeah, Jason can do that. And I sort of got folded back into theater first. Um, for an off for an off Broadway show, I I did at the at the I programmed at the Atlantic, and then a couple of tours, and then the legit shows. Okay, so for new people trying to break in, break into your, what? Break into what? Lighting, just getting lighting. Do you recommend they start to specialize, take whatever you can get, work for free? You know, man, I don't. I mean, man, it's you know people ask me all the time. Actually, um, you know, one, I, I don't know that any one path, I don't know that any one person's path is a path that anyone else can follow. Um, I know it works for me, which, which has always been do the thing that sounds the most interesting and don't worry too much about how much it pays. Um, I know that's, that's sort of opposite what I said earlier, but generally that's sort of worked for me that you just sort of, you know, you, you take whatever opportunities you can get and when they start conflicting, you to figure out which one has the most future in it. As far as breaking in and getting the first job, I, 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 don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what to say other than, you know, reach out and contact people who are already doing this and ask them if they can come look over your, you know, come look over their shoulder, ask them if they can, ask them if you can uh, work with them or run stuff, run stuff for them or if you know how to draft, if you can draft for them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always, people will always be more willing to bring someone on to a job if they already know them. Mm -hmm. um, I know as a young person, I always thought it was kind of ridiculous that referrals were so, you know, that it was, that it was all about who you knew. And, but then becoming a, you know, because I'm also the head of the lighting department and the lighting designer at an event space on 42nd Street here. And that became critical for me. Like, oh, I have to know if this person can do the job or not. You know, I, I need someone who knows them really well to tell me if they can do this. You know, I, their resume tells me very little about what. So I, I sort of, I sort of came to understand that. 
you know, and then if you have to replace myself or something, it's, you know, I need to know this person can do the job. I, it's not enough to see that, oh, they did this on their resume. I want someone to tell me, yes, they did that. They did really well at it, et cetera, et cetera. So someone's always more willing to hire someone that they know and have seen in action. So if you're, you know, in a lot of, you know, if you're in a designer's office doing something and they need something else, you don't want to be the first person they ask if you, you know, hey, hey, can you do that? Can I, can I bring you on mm -hmm. for that? Um, so yeah, just getting on getting on people's radar is probably the, one of the more important things. Well, again, thank you so much for coming down, Jason Marion. It's a wonderful talk. I hope people kind of check out your podcast. It's, I hope so too. I think it's always great. I think the more you know about all the different sides of of the art, uh, even if it's not something you're doing, but the more capable you are to show off your skills. Absolutely. So, okay, thanks for coming by. Thank you very much. Listening room. As I promised, here's one more song from Thomas Riley's musical, Wearing Black. This is All I'll Say. I'm sorry I missed the funeral. It's not like you could have rescheduled the bar. How was it? I don't know. I thought my brain was leaking out of my ears, but fingers crossed. I'm sure you'll pass. Here's hoping. I appreciate you coming with me, but all you need to do today is help me give his stuff away, okay? Mostly your breath. I have Altoids in my purse. Let's go.
Well, that wraps up this episode. We'll be back with another brand new episode on Tuesday, November 2nd. We've got three more episodes left in this first half of the season. And again, if you have any ideas of where I might be able to tape interviews at in New York the second week of December, I would appreciate a heads up. If you're interested in helping out with those uh, interviews, greeting the people, uh, helping me organize, etc., you meet a lot of cool people, email me at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Also, for those interviews that grabbed you from this episode, we also post in our feed the full-length, unedited interviews from the interview sessions. Uh, I get into a lot more kind of like technical industry detail in general with uh, the people. So if you are industry, you might find a lot more stuff in those full interviews. Encourage you to check those out. Spread the word about Broadway Bullet to all of your theater-loving friends. Show them how to subscribe. You know, as much as podcasts have been around, some people still don't know how to do it. So, uh, you know, show them. With that said, I'll be back here in two weeks. Broadway Bullet is produced and hosted by myself, Michael Gilbo, associate producer, Caroline Reyes, and special thanks again to the first half of our season's location host, Sid Gold's Request Room. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.